welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people. The whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, behold. A little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Father, we are grateful that on this Pentecost Sunday, we are able to be gathered in physical and virtual spaces to hear from you. As the spirit of Pentecost came down all of those years ago, Jesus, thank you that you remain crucified, resurrected, and ascended, and then the spirit still given to the church. And Father, would by the spirit we have the mind of Christ to understand this passage. Give us your illumination, O Lord, that we would learn of the grace of this Jesus, that we would be cemented in him despite our sin, as Jesus has died on the cross for those sins specifically. Uh, Father, help us to know the renewal of Jesus and the hope for our world that he gives. Be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. You may be seated. So last Sunday morning here at Liberty Collingswood, when I was preaching, I talked about God things, those expectedly unexpected moments or instances where you say, okay, God is at work here. I'd like to tell you about another one of those God things, those God times in my life right now. So a few of you know some of my backstory. The first church that I pastored was a church that had been struggling for a long time and eventually as I was leading it, I brought the church to a point of closing. Now, some of you might know that part of the story, but here's a little bit more. The original plan for that church in Aftermath was a two-parter. So it was a two-part plan, the first part of which was this church. It was in West Philadelphia, University City. This church will close, but the plan, part two, was that I, with my family, we would remain in West Philadelphia and seek to start a new church, a new church plant, a replant for new mission in the area. The church that I was pastoring was not well contextualized to the area that we were in. Hey, what about a new church with a new mission for a new day in the life of this area? It's going to be great. And so I spent a long time in prayer and in solitude 
about that very thing, including I went to Western Pennsylvania to my parents' place and took a little prayer retreat there, seeking God's face about these things. And this was the early to mid-2000s, so my dad was still working in New Orleans. The place in Western PA was pretty empty. I spent a long time praying. And I asked part one of the question to God. God, what do you want? Might it be your will that this church in West Philadelphia that had enjoyed fruitful ministry for decades, but then also had been on a decades-long decline, is it time for this church to close? And prayed about it for a long time, felt a lot of peace, and I felt God saying, yeah, well done, good and faithful servant, Church of the Redeemer in West Philadelphia. It's time for this church to close. But then I also prayed about that second part, too. And you may have heard stories about the proverbial prayer warrior going out into the desert, going high up on the mountain, wearing the hair shirt. In my parents' place, there's this really comfy couch in the basement. And that's where I was for a few days praying. I would just lay on the couch. But during one of those times, and this doesn't happen to me very often, don't get me wrong, I felt like I had a vision from God. It went like this. I was laying on the couch, and in my mind, I saw before me a map of West Philly, and sort of like if you know the story in Daniel about the invisible hand, I felt a line, I felt like I saw in my mind's eye, or by the eye of faith, a line being drawn around certain area of University City, West Philadelphia, Cedar Park, and that vision stayed in my mind for a long time. And I felt that God was saying to me, I didn't quite hear a voice, but Jim, there will be this new church in this area. It will be a new church plant. And God even gave me a name for it. And I felt like this is awesome. And now, whether then or now, did I think 100% that God had 100% inerrantly revealed something to me that 100% I was interpreting inerrantly and completely? No, not at all. But I felt solid, like this is something that's actually from God. And so I went back to my leaders and the congregation in West Philly and unfolded that two-part plan. And so part one, should our church close a long series of conversations. I'm a veteran of long series of conversations at churches. Long series of conversations. And there was strong consensus. And there was only about 10 to 15 adults at the church at that point, not counting Emily and me. We're so thankful for the life of this church, but it's time to close. A lot of tears, but not a lot of disagreement. So that was part one, and the church closed. On that, on that closing Sunday for this old church, Church of the Redeemer, we invited lots of alums who had been part of the church. This is in the University of Pennsylvania and Drexel area, so a lot of people that had hooked into the church, but part of it for a little while in their 20s and moved all over, all over the world in some cases. Many of them came back. The church sanctuary was filled for the first time in my ministry there. It was a great send-off. And then came part Two, and I worked, and I worked, and I worked. I felt pretty strongly that it shouldn't just be me planting alone. I wanted another pastor or two to plant with a small pastoral team. Didn't want it to be on my own again. I wanted to go from planting out of another church. 
and they had conversations over here. Hey, let's do this. And then the conversation partner was, yeah, that sounds great. And then a couple months later, yeah, that doesn't sound great anymore. And then talked over here. Can it be in this direction? Maybe, 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 no. And over a series of months, nearly a year, it just felt like door after door after door was closing. For a church plant to happen, there's a lot of things that need to come together, a lot of pieces that need to align. It just didn't. And I remember it was a Tuesday afternoon when after months of trying to make a way for us to remain in West Philadelphia and plant a new church there, it just felt like this isn't going to happen. And I told Emily, my wife, I think I need to start looking more broadly for a job because I just don't think there's one here for me right now. And it felt like a failure. It felt like a double failure. I closed the one church that I pastored and I couldn't get the other one off the ground. But it's okay. There's a happy ending to the story. I connected with this church plant in Texas in the western part of the state and brought them through the process of electing elders and deacons, a church happy and healthy. It's still going today and still growing. And then eventually came back here. All good. And then also in West Philadelphia, it's not the case that since the early to mid-2000s that there's been a church plant there for new mission in the area. There's been lots of different church plants in the area. So God has been building his church in that section of the city that I loved so much for a period of time. Fast forward to today. Or more specifically, fast forward to last Sunday. And whether you were in the room or watching online Eric's ordination service from last Sunday afternoon, it was a great time. You heard a couple people say, and maybe you've not necessarily need to be in the loop with this, but maybe you've heard that there are a couple churches in Philadelphia that we're friends with, that we're connected with, that have merged into one. Liberty Church, Center City, in Center City of Philadelphia, and City Church Philadelphia in West Philly, they have merged into one church. And so you may have heard Chris Curry say, hey, I'm Chris Curry, formerly of City Church Philadelphia, and now of Resurrection Church Philadelphia. And then Scott Jennings say, hey, I'm Scott Jennings, formerly of Liberty Center City, but now of Resurrection Church in Philadelphia. Here's the thing. Here's the God thing. When I first, I had known about the merger for a long time, and when I first heard about what they were going to call the church, I smiled, because all of those years ago, that was the name that I felt God give me on the couch. When I had that vision about a new church in West Philadelphia. And City Church's footprint is pretty much the map that I had in my mind all of those years ago. And you might think, well, Jim, did you like tell the leadership at either Liberty Center City or City Church Philadelphia, hey, all these years ago, I had a vision about a church in that area. It's called Resurrection. I think you should take the name. No, I didn't do that. I don't think I've told anybody that name for years and years and years, except way back when, and sort of like, this is why you don't know the names of my ex-girlfriends. Totally irrelevant to anything else, and I'm kind of embarrassed about it. Didn't tell anybody for maybe 15 years. But then this name reappeared. And once again, am I suggesting that all of those years ago on my parents' couch, that it was 100% certain and I just nailed it, that this was going to be 15 or more years later the name of this church and if I had turned the vision card back around and read the fine print on the back it would have said actually this name applies and is copyrighted by a church in 2021 in the near future. I'm not saying that. 
But it's also not the flip side, where I don't believe that it was just some of that great old Western Pennsylvania Italian food that was gurgling up in my belly, causing me to have visions that had nothing to do with anything. But why I can have some confidence that what I thought God showed me all of those years ago was connected with something that's happening in the present because we see from the scriptures that our God is a God of providence. And we'll define that term in just a moment here. God is always at work, directly and indirectly, throughout the course of the entire world. And God always shows up and God is always moving. And so my perspective on what happened all of those years ago was that God gave me a little glimpse of a long flow of history that God is in charge of because God is a God of deep providence, and we're living in it. And it was when I heard a couple months ago that this new church in Philly was going to be called Resurrection Church, I thought about what I just told you. I thought, I want to live more with the greater, deeper awareness that God is actually working in our world. I want to live in that flow more. And what if we all could? And what if we could do that together? And so let's talk in three parts from here about 1 Kings, the first part of the chapter, 1 Kings, sorry, the last part of the chapter, 1 Kings 18, verses 41 to 46. We'll talk in three parts from here about how God is at work in the world, directly, indirectly, and graciously. God's at work in the world directly, indirectly, and graciously. And so it was last week from earlier on in 1 Kings chapter 18 that we had the main event, the royal rumble. It was Elijah versus Ahab. It was Elijah's God, Yahweh, against Ahab's God, Baal. That's when we had the altars on Mount Carmel. Who is the real God? Set up the altar over here, set up the altar over here. And whatever God rains down fire, there had been a drought in the land for three years. Whatever God rains down fire, that's the real God. But if that was the main event from last week, something was missing from it. Namely, there was no rain yet. If the precipitating issue here was the lack of precipitation, surely God is going to get around, if he is the real God, not the storm God Baal, to actually causing rain to come. And that's what he does in this passage after three years, arid climate of no rain. God sends the rains down because God is directly involved in working in history. And throughout the ages of the church, that has been called the doctrine of God's providence. And there's a great summary of it. Eric in his sermon alluded to it a couple of weeks ago from the Heidelberg Catechism. I spent a good chunk of time a couple of years ago preaching through that catechism. And there is a great question and answer. What is God's providence? And it goes like this. The almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures... And so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. 
And that's a teaching from the scriptures that's not just to be checked off as a doctrinal box. That's something that we can lean into to try to live in the flow that God actually is, in fact, in charge of all things. And I get it, whether you're here in the room or listening online, watching online, it's, it's hard for us to believe and it stretches us, both in some ways that people have been stretched by this teaching for a long time. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But here's another one. Why is it hard for us as modern people to believe that God is actually in charge of all things? Well, now, as science and other things have advanced, we know too much. We are now the men and women that know too much or a lot about how the world works. Take rain, for instance, which is the thing here in this passage. In pre-modern times, if you would have asked a pre-modern person, generalizing here, I'm not literally talking about every person that ever lived in pre-modern times, but by and large, whether east or west, north or south, Christian or not, why does it rain? And that person or that people group would have said, well, it's God's will. However God was conceived, the God's or God, or the divinities, it is a result of divine fiat that sometimes it rains and sometimes it doesn't. But I was in high school in the 90s, and some of you might remember El Nino, that ambiguous weather event that yet affected so many things in the Western Hemisphere. We studied a ton about why rain happens. It's about high-pressure systems and low-pressure systems and Gulf Streams and Arctic winds. I could tell you so much more about the nitty-gritty of that science, but I'll just stop there. We now know all of these proximate mechanisms and causes as to why it rains. And so when we turn around and think about God's providence, God causing things, God being at work directly in our lives, we don't need God as an explanatory hypothesis anymore. And I get that. But I would only engage this way and say, living in a world with no providence, with no causation of anything, and just total purposelessness and randomness, that's a tough thing to own. Last year after pandemic started, I read a book about a pandemic earlier on. Philip Roth, the New Jersey author, his last novel was about the polio ep epidemic in the early to mid 20th century, a time of deep fear. Polio infection rate was high, it killed a lot of people, crippled more. Nobody knew how it was spread, and so it's set in Newark in these tenement buildings when people are packed together with little sanitation, little ventilation. What is going on with the polio right now? Will we even survive? And one of the characters eventually gets stricken, and this is what he says. This is somebody that is not a person of faith and believes that things are just random. Sometimes you're lucky, and sometimes you're not. Any biography is chance. And beginning at conception, chance, the tyranny of contingency, is everything. This character is saying, life is just a crapshoot of we don't know what's going to happen in the world. Everything is random. That's all it is. This character, not a coincidence, dies incredibly bitter. And don't we feel the weight and fatigue right now of living in a world of a futureless present? There's no purpose in any of it. A book that came out recently, Lost Children Archive by Valeria Luiselli, puts it this way. Perhaps it's just that we sense an abundance and an absence of future because the present has become too overwhelming. And so the future has become unimaginable. And without future, time feels only like an accumulation 
an accumulation of months, days, natural disasters, television series, terrorist attacks, divorces, mass migrations, birthdays, photographs, sunrises, and then we're gone. But what if there's more? What if there's more? And we go into the scriptures and find that there is a God who providentially directs all things and shows up, intervenes in this world that God has created. We see it here in this passage. God is at work to direct our lives. He's speaking and acting through Elijah. A couple chapters earlier, we see it established. This is the widow at Zarephath that says, Elijah, God is truly at work in you. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And Elijah is sure acting like it when we get to this passage here. He's speaking in place of God, beginning of the passage. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, earlier in the Elijah cycle of stories, it's God that speaks and Elijah that obeys. That's a formula of command and compliance showing that the word of God is obeyed fully by Elijah earlier, but now it's Elijah himself that's giving that same command and compliance formula. Elijah is now in charge, and Ahab, who, by the way, only speaks once in this entire chapter earlier on, there you are, you troubler of Israel. Elijah turns around and says, no, you're the troubler of Israel, and then Ahab's silent for the rest of the chapter. Okay, I'm not going to talk anymore because God is at work here in this story and in the world right now. And then also towards the end of the passage, Ahab is still obeying the word of Elijah. Elijah tells his servant, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And that's exactly what Ahab does. God's in charge. Not to mention, let's not forget, it's God that sends the rain. God's in charge, directing events at just the right time. You see Elijah telling his servant, go up and check seven times, verse 44. Seven is that old biblical number, symbolic fullness, just the right time. And it's a little more obscure here in the English version in our translation than it is in the original. This rain that breaks upon the ancient Near East is sudden and supernatural, Sort of like this, beginning of verse 45, and in a little while, as in suddenly, supernaturally, out of nowhere, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. That's because God is sovereign, another word for being king and directing all things. God is a God of providence. And that impulse, that motif, that truth spins forward into the very center of the Christian story when Jesus of Nazareth came to this earth. That's the big God thing, where in Jesus, God intervenes. I love how Luke puts it in his gospel, one of the narrative accounts of Jesus' life, talking about how God is showing up in Jesus. Luke 3, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, the father of John the Baptist. It's like in those movies where maybe the camera and maybe it's CGI, I don't know, is like way, way high, maybe in outer space, 
and the camera zooms in, zooms in, zooms in. You part through the clouds. You see bodies of water. You see continents. And it gets closer and closer and closer and closer to Collingswood. And here we are. Only it's here in Luke. All of these other figures, these rulers are named. Big geographical regions, small. But here is the word of God penetrating into one person, Zechariah. And thus is birthed upon the world the story of Jesus coming. God intervenes. And how can we be in that flow? I'd say simply look. Connecting in with what we said last week. Be on the lookout in your life for God things. God, where are you showing up? God, where are you moving? God, where are you acting? God, let me see. Let me not just be this materialist where the only thing going on is what's on my phone and what I can see and what I can touch. Give me the eyes of faith. And I'm not saying, hey, every day you're going to get a vision from God like I got on the couch all those years ago. That's only happened a couple times in my entire life. But more than that, you see God show up in all of these big and small ways. This God who is active to send the rain, to speak through Elijah, is active here as well, directly and then also indirectly. Now, I wouldn't blame you if you're sitting here thinking, okay, God's at work in the world. I don't see it. I don't know where God is, whether you're saying that as somebody is a Christian or somebody that's struggling with your faith or somebody that's like, hey, faith might not really be for me. I don't know where God is. I don't see it. Well, the good news is that we also see that in this passage here. God, are you at work when we don't know what's going on? Take a look in the worship folder at verse 42. This is a great I don't know verse. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of the mountain of Mount Carmel. And he bowed his, himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. Do you know what's going on in these two actions? Right before the rain comes, Ahab goes to the top of the mountain and eats. And then Elijah goes somewhere else, puts his head between his knees. If you know what's going on here in these two actions, you know more than all of the commentaries that I looked at over the past couple of weeks about this passage. And at least from a reader response perspective, we don't know what's going on here. So when Ahab goes to the top of the mountain and eats, is that a symbolic act that signifies that the drought is about to end? Is it a covenant renewal meal? Is it that Ahab says, oh, there's an olive garden. And it's unlimited pasta today. Time for me to carbo-load. We just don't know. Or when Elijah puts his head between his knees, is that a posture of prayer? Is that a posture of despair? Is he just doing what the flight attendant's telling him to do? We have no idea. But even when we don't know, God is at work. So if you don't know what God is doing, okay, Bible says that God is in charge of all things providentially, but I don't see it in my life. Don't panic. God is still at work in those I don't know moments. I didn't know what was happening when I thought God was leading me to plant a church in West Philadelphia. It didn't happen. But God was at work in that entire process. And we can be confident in the same thing. Or consider the rain. It's one act decisively by God, but so many indirect effects throughout the ancient Near East when this rain comes, how many countless people were affected in myriad ways. God is in charge of all of those different independent effects. 
And even though God is strongly with Elijah, at the beginning of this passage, God is speaking through Elijah. At the end, God is just working indirectly. When Elijah goes to Jezreel, and that sets up the story for next week, the passage just says God's hand was upon him. God didn't tell him, it seems like. God didn't show him. But God was just at work in the flow, as he is for us. And it's Jesus himself that tells us in Luke's gospel again, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them because he superintends over all of this, over all of the mess. And maybe there are some big I don't knows in your life right now. God, are you at work in this? Go to the scriptures, ask for prayer, discover the strengthening of the community of faith, and trust that God is here and near to work, even in the bad things. So if a more modern challenge for us to believe is God in charge of all things, we know more mechanically and scientifically than ever before, here's an old challenge. Can God truly be in charge of all things? What about the bad stuff? What about all of the pain, all of the suffering? A problem as old as the book of Job and the Hebrew scriptures. If you're God and if you're good, how do we account for all of this hurt, for all of this mess, for all of this pain? And that's a great question. And one of the places that I go to in the scriptures as I wrestle with this, and I don't know that the Bible gives one global answer for all of these things, but here's one of them that to me is a key perspective. On Pentecost Sunday, when Peter is talking about this Christ who's crucified and resurrected again, we celebrate Pentecost here this morning. Peter says this in the middle of Acts chapter 2. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But in the same breath, Peter says, this happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. A lot of questions. Here's just a couple of thoughts. At one level, we see here that if Jesus, if God the Father is in control of the crucifixion of Jesus in some mysterious way, he's in control of all of the bad stuff in our lives too. But it's not just a bare control. We see that Jesus died and rose again. Why does all this pain and all this suffering happen under a God who's in control? I don't have all of the answers for that, but I see through the cross that God hates the pain and the suffering and the death so much that he sent his only beloved son, Jesus, to die under that same weight and suffer under that same evil and conquer it again so that there will come a day when it's no more. Such that the divine arc of the universe for God's children tends towards redemption. The Apostle Paul says, for we know that God works all things for the good of those who are called by the name of Jesus according to his purpose and for those that love God.
How do we live in that flow? Well, we look and we listen. We keep our spiritual ear to the ground. Say, God, where are you working in the midst of all of this mess? Where is your direction? What are you doing? What are silver linings that I can be finding right now? What are you building? And we'll never get to the point where we connect pain point A with good thing B in this inerrant line or way. But we're still able to say, God's got this. God's got this. God is at work directly and indirectly and finally graciously. Like I said, this is not a bare control of all things. Like, God is not a Vulcan. Sorry, Star Trek fans, if you're a huge fan of Spock. I'm always more of a Kirk guy. I mean, come on, who's not a Kirk guy? Spock, also fine. But it's just a, you know, totally straight-laced, right brain, emotionless, even though I really Spock had emotions. That's not God's control. All of these things come to us, the Heidelberg Catechism says, by God's fatherly hand. As we look at the story of Elijah, if you've been following along, think how far we've come so far. Wherever Elijah is, there is God's surprising grace and sustenance and healing and forgiveness and life and joy. There's a drought. God says, Elijah, let's get you to the brook tree. And there you'll find water, and by ravens, I will give you food. Elijah, let's get you to the widow at Zarephath, an outsider, somebody looked down upon and frowned upon that's not worthy enough in the eyes of Israel. We'll send you there. And there you'll perform miracles. You'll give flour and oil in the midst of drought, saving the widow and her son from starvation. And then when the son gets sick and dies, I will raise that son again. And I will show myself through Elijah, God says, in fire and in water, in coming down in judgment and also in gracious rain. There is God's help where Elijah is. And all the more, all the more in Jesus. Wherever Jesus is, there is God's life and redemption and forgiveness and healing and joy. In all of the mess in our lives, we're able to look by faith to this Jesus and say, just like God got Elijah, just like God got Jesus, God's got me. I referenced these verses briefly last week, but this is where we'll wrap up. The Apostle Paul asks, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, paying the penalty for us sin on the cross. How will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? Our future is not unimaginable, bare accumulation of days, but by faith we perceive a better future that God has prepared. And so as we seek to live in the flow now, we look, we listen, and we hope. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. 
live, speak, and serve at you later.